And eight hours later, um, mom shows up with like four bags of Del Taco and 1500 bucks. I pay it, we get our stuff, and we drive home. And that's when the reality hit. We're like, oh, we failed. Hey everybody, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. We're here today with Dee Murthy, the co-founder of Young and Reckless and the 5-4 Club. Dee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Dee, we're going to start off really basic. We kind of want to know about your background, your upbringing, and then you know we'll let the conversation flow. We'll keep it super conversational with you. Uh, we want the listeners to kind of get the raw story behind you, the founder of this company and these companies actually now. Uh, so why don't you kind of little, introduce yourself to our audience? Cool. Uh, well, I grew up in Southern California, grew up in the Valley, and went to high school in the Valley, and then later I went to college at USC. Pretty much traditional suburban, you know, play sports, eat Taco Bell, yeah. go to school. <laughs> and uh, when I went to USC, I kind of it was an eye-opening experience because they had an entrepreneurship program, and it was really about like being a self-starter and kind of go figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life. So I actually started my first business when I was a freshman in college. It was uh, kind of when the first dot-com boom happened. And I was able to raise money, like a quarter million dollars, as an 18-year-old in like 30 days. What was the company? It was a company called (laughs) schoolgossip.com. And it was a place for high school and college kids to kind of... It was like a message board with content. And it was just... um, it was kind of like an MTV, almost. Is this pre-Facebook? This is way before Facebook. This is six years before Facebook. Wow. So, really early stages of the internet. Um, the actual business did really well, and then kind of had a falling out with some of the partners, and decided to go on and do something else. And really, at USC is when I first kind of started thinking about the idea of fashion and things like that. And uh, really, the most interesting thing about that story is kind of how we actually ended up, you know, starting the business. So, so growing up when you're a child, before you even get to college, what, what, like, what, what were your aspirations? Like, did you always like were you always interested in apparel, or did you have other aspirations, something else you wanted to do or be or? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was ever interested in fashion. Like, we you know, I grew up like middle class, and clothing, nice clothes, was not part of my wardrobe. I remember when uh, when we one of my friends left his uh, hoodie at our house one day as a kid. It was a Gap hoodie, and my mom's like, "You're never gonna get the Gap." Like it was like some unicorn. It was a price point that we couldn't afford. I was like, really? What is the gap? And now no one wants the gap. <laughs> yeah, full circle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was right. Exactly. I don't she, want the gap. She was the visionary right there. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I mean, like not into fashion, not really into anything besides like sports. And then I really got interested in the stock market when I was really young, when I was like 13. And my parents actually gave me some money and then my parents' friends gave me some money. And so I actually got like a real hard lesson in, in, in cash when I was young. And, and then that's really what made me research like every company. And then I learned about entrepreneurship and starting your own business. I was actually obsessed with investment banking when I was like 15. That was really my true passion. When you were 15? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So, and then when I got to college, I was like, well, they actually don't make the most money. It's actually the founder yeah. <laughs> yeah, of the business go. they're selling. So that's kind of, you know, 
fashion was never really part of the equation going up. So you do this school gossip, yeah. you know, business for a couple of years. What was it? Three years. Three years, and then that kind of just falls apart. So you're finishing up school. You know, what are the plans now for Demurthy at that point? So I was still bent up on doing something on my own. I really liked what we did at School Gossip, and you know, I had a staff. We raised money. We were generating revenue, and it was really fun. I mean, who did? Sorry to cut you off, but who did you raise that quarter million from? It was from a really wealthy private investor in Southern California. Okay. I, I'll tell you offline. I don't okay, want to okay, blow okay, okay, okay. him up, but okay. you guys will know who it is. Okay. And so, and he uh, trusted you as an eighteen-year-old. That you know, it was this era where like these young kids were like in garages raising tons of money, going public, and mm-hmm, you just mm-hmm. didn't want to miss out on it. Yeah, it's kind of like it's happening right now. Yeah, again, we're like. Uh, venture capitalists are investing in young people because they see there's a there's this transition happening. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think it's like an every twenty year thing. It just kind of happens where like it's like a cycle. Yeah, where mm-hmm. like people are like, I don't want to miss out. Mm-hmm. I gotta get Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. just like whatever. You exactly. get the FOMO and then you start throwing money every mm-hmm, which way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what ultimately led to the bubble of two thousand and you know the world fell apart. Exactly. So yeah, sorry, you were talking about you know end of your college kind of career. I know that that's kind of when all this stuff kind of started and that was the inception of it. Yeah. Uh, so tell us, you know, about that story and how it kind of really started off, you know, like that kind of cliche entrepreneur story of like in the dorm room kind of thing. Yeah. What, what's even to take a step back, the few weeks leading up to our senior year of college within the entrepreneurship program, we knew they had told us in advance, come first day ready with whatever idea and work on it the whole year mm-hmm. so that hypothetically you could launch it right when you graduate. So we were in New York City, my my close friend Andres and I, and he was obsessed with fashion, like to another level. And he goes to me, he's like, we got to go to this store in New York. It just opened in America. Like, we got to go. We got to go. And I was like, I don't want to go to a store. Like, I just want to eat pizza and like <laughs> try to get into a Yankee yeah, thing. Exactly. Right? And he's like, no, 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 we got to go. So we go to Fifth Avenue. I'm like, great, Fifth Avenue. There's no chance I can afford anything yeah. there. So we walk in, and this place is a zoo. It just opened like a month ago. And there are lines everywhere. And I was like, what the hell is this place? I finally just stand in the corner just being grumpy and not paying attention. And I finally, I was like, oh, that jacket's cool. Let me go see how much it costs. Probably like $200. I flip it over, and it was 30 bucks. Wow. And I was like, holy shit, what is this store? And it was H&M. It was the first H&M in America. And at that point, it just blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Like, these guys are going to, like, democratize fashion. Because fashion, to me, always felt like an elitist thing. Mm -hmm. Gap Gap and all the American brands had always focused on basics, elevated basics, which isn't interesting from a product standpoint. But H&M was going to bring high fashion to the masses. Mm -hmm. And that was their first store. And at that point, I was like, ah, I get it. It was like that aha moment. Yeah, I was like, if we could do this, this is really interesting. So we come back uh, first day of school and talk to Andres. And I was like, let's do it together. Let's like write this. We have to do a feasibility study, then a business plan. Like, let's do it together. And let's call the brand 5-4 and let's go for it. But why 5-4? It's like a really embarrassing story, but at this point... That's that's the thing, the, those are the things like we, we like to hear. Yeah, so 5-4 <laughs> was actually uh, the way we said goodbye to each other. And it was really on, like, we grew up on hip-hop, and everyone used to say, like, one, one love, and it was five minus four equals one, and so we called it, we started saying five, four, and we would just do this with every word, we just have, like, (laughs) phrases and words, we would just, we wouldn't speak in English, and it was Because that's, okay, that's overrated, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) And so, 
at that point we were just like that was what was top of mind yeah. and we never thought about oh global brand yeah, yeah. and all this stuff yeah, like, there's a business plan in college yeah, yeah like who cares yeah. so like let's just call it five four everyone knows what it is in our friend circle it'll be funny mm-hmm. 15 years later we're stuck so, with it it's not so not so funny now <laughs> Not so, so that's literally how the name started and then the first day of college started and we started working on the feasibility and the business plan and we really set out to build the American version of H&M which was at that point you know when you're when you're when you're like 21 you you think you're unbelievable as a human being as an intelligent person and everything you're invincible that's kind of the gift and the curse of mm-hmm. being 21 mm-hmm. yeah so you guys are you know in college now and this is kind of a project in a class and yeah. I'm sure at some point you know it felt really serious like this yeah. is like you know actually happening and it's yeah. working uh, at what point did you kind of feel like you know there's something here like was there like a, like a moment or something that happened that kind of yeah I think the biggest moment was about four months go in we write this business plan we're like oh we're going to do this we're going to do that but then what really happens is we made some samples on uh, we had sold some some to some friends and obviously they'll support it because they're your friends and we were really hyped on that but one day we decided on a saturday morning let's go see if we can get it into stores like how hard is that and we had no idea no method to it so i grew up in granada hills northridge area my friend grew up in hancock park area so he went to a store in Silver Lake that he knew of. I went to my hometown mall, Northridge Mall. Walked into the store that I used to shop at called White Sand. And I said, hey man, I just started a brand. Would you be interested in buying it? And he looks at it and he's like, yeah, it's cool. He's like, I'll support the local dude. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah. He's like, writes an order. It was like 400 bucks. And I was like, I call my partner. I'm like, dude, this is so easy. Like we got it. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to go right now. An hour later, he calls me, I got an order. I was like, what? We got into two stores in like an hour? Like, all we have to do is just show up at stores and people will give us orders. At that point, we were like, this is real. Yeah. Because once you get it into a store, like now anyone can buy your product. And that Mm -hmm. just blew our mind at that point. And at this point, what are you selling exactly? Was it just t-shirts? T-shirts. With 5-4. Yeah, just 5-4 local. So that's even crazier. Like, it's never heard of this brand. Yeah. And it's just like, it was an art-driven graphic, yeah. but you never heard of it. And at that time, there's really no social media or anything to really no. promote it, to, you know, kind of have a brand image. You know, like these days, obviously, people buy the brand. You know, they see all these cool people wearing it, obviously, you know, and that's something that you've transitioned to as well. But at that point, you know, what was the marketing? What were was, you doing? It was really like going to the, the, the store owner or the buyer and say, trust me, we're doing something special. And we're cool, believe us. Like, we know cool people. Like, the brand's gonna be cool one day. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's just people give young people a shot. That's really what I thought it was. And because when I look it back, I would never have given myself an order. But I was very persistent. Like, I was very aggressive in terms of like, always, if I didn't get the order, I'd come back next week, and then next week, then a month later. All about the follow-up. Yeah, and then eventually, they'll cave. They'll be, they'll, you'll eventually do something that they like. Or they'll just get annoyed and be like, dude, here you go. Just yeah. stop bothering me. Like, you know, take it. I'll yeah. order a few pieces. And, and and I think, you know, there's a, obviously a tasteful way to do it so you don't get yeah. a bad reputation. But yeah. we were always persistent and followed through. And eventually people kind of would, get, would give in. And so when we got that first order, we were like, as soon as we graduate from college, this is it. Like, we got to go for it. So you graduate. You, you don't want to even work anywhere. I mean, you have this kind of going for you. 
Part of the, yeah, part, partly was that. The other part was we kind of graduated in a recession, so there was no jobs. So that wasn't really like only the top of the top got jobs when I graduated. And so when I looked at the landscape and I was like, you know what, might as well give, if we're going to ever be entrepreneurs, this is a great age to do it. Like, so if we fail, if we go bankrupt, what are we, 25? We're not losing much. Yeah, exactly. We yeah. have nothing to lose. So we were like, let's just go for it. Let's try it for a couple of years and see what happens. And so we graduated from college and uh, we signed up for our first trade show in August of 2002. So it's August 2002, you're kind of, what, a couple years removed from college at this point? No, like six weeks. Six yeah. weeks removed <laughs> from college at this point. Um, and, and you have a really funny, interesting story for these trade shows. Like, yeah. tell us kind of what happened and, and yeah, so, I mean, how things unfolded. The, the trade show at the time cost $7,000, which we didn't really have, um, except for the fact that a bunch of credit cards, like, I, uh, you know, when you walk around on campus, you get the free t-shirts. I signed up for like three of them because I was just wanted the t-shirts. Because, you know, USC merch is fucking expensive. Yeah, so if I ever get is. the license, I'm going to drop the prices <laughs> and screw everyone. And... I really think, you know, I was literally looking through my wallet and I was like, how are we going to pay for this? I'm like, I don't have any money. He didn't have any money, my partner. My parents were like, you're an idiot for doing this. So I was like, hey, let me go see online how much each of these limits are. One was 500, one was 1,000, one was 1,500. I was like, oh, I got 3,500 right here. So just swipe it and pay for the deposit for the booth. Our friends help us build the booth. So in my parents' backyard, there's an incredible picture. I don't know if I have it here, but uh, all of us sitting, like hammering in a booth together. And I rent a U-Haul, drive up to Vegas. We build the booth, my friends and I. We stay in a motel like 20 miles off the strip in Vegas. And we go do this show. And, you know, it's tough. Like we had, this is the same time in, in LA where brands were, a lot of cool brands were launching. And we had heard stories. Oh, they did 100 grand their first day, 50 grand their first day. And I was like, oh, we're just going to show up and it's going to work. We sh- the show was four days. The first three days, we didn't get one order. The fourth day, we got like four pity orders. Literally like, damn, I see you guys trying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hook you up. Like literally was that. Yeah. And, and then, you know, the show ends and like, this is like the reality of like, start being an entrepreneur hits really quickly. Show ends. They hand me a bill for like 1500 bucks, and I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, I can't pay this. And they're like, well, then you can't have your booth back. I'm like... This is to, to get your booth that you built back. Yeah, back. They won't let you leave the show. So the union in Vegas kind of controls all these convention centers. And there's just there's like this like scammy thing called drayage fees, which is pretty much the transport of your goods inside the facility to outside or vice versa. And there's a fee each time based on weight. And I didn't... I didn't know about this. So I get this bill and I'm like, I don't got 1500 bucks and you can't have your stuff. I'm like, what are you guys going to do with it? And like, it'll just be in storage. Just like thousands of things there. We don't care. So I call my mom. I'm like, I need 1500 bucks. And like, I need like cash because they're not going to take like over the phone and like, it seems scammy. So she's like, Oh my, what do you want me to do? I'm like, can you fly here? (laughs) Like right now to Vegas. (laughs) Yeah. From LA. So, and, she, and I'm like, and also, can you bring us some food? Like, we haven't eaten in a day. <laughs> so, she, my mom's amazing. She, uh, you know, within like eight hours. Shout out to all the moms. Yeah. <laughs> parents got to be patient. And eight hours later, um, 
Mom shows up with like four bags of Del Taco <laughs> and fifteen hundred bucks. I pay it. We get our stuff and we drive home. And that's when the reality hit. We're like, oh, we failed. Like this was a waste of time. Yeah. And literally the next day, I just started hopping back in my car and I just started going to every account. It started in Southern California, then I went to Northern California, then I went to Vegas and Arizona, and then eventually the whole country. Mm-hmm. Because I was like. Sitting at a trade show, it's so hard to get above the noise. It's like social media. Everyone's like, I'm going to build my, my, my business on social media. Well, there's a billion people on social media. So how are you going to get above the noise? So my thought at that point was, I'm going to go meet every retailer. If I show up in Livonia, Michigan, you're going to give me an order. Because no one goes to Livonia, Michigan. And it worked. Like, literally the next three, four years, I just literally went to every goddamn mall. And, and met all the buyers. I played basketball with them, went to lunch, hung out at their house. I even stayed with some of them. And they're, today, some of my close friends are still these retailers that I've you know, stayed in touch with. But that one-to-one relationship, I think, is so powerful to this day. Like, whenever I ask them for anything, I'm launching a new brand. I need you to put it in the store. Cool. I got you. No, no questions asked. Totally. I think that's something that Patrick and I both talk about is the power of personal relationships and how you know that's really the way... You kind of advance not only yourself but your business because if somebody really likes you, somebody's your friend, yeah. they'd be more inclined to help you, in my opinion, as opposed to somebody that you're just kind of calling randomly, like a cold call. Yeah. You're like, hey, I have an awesome product. Well, yeah, that's great, but I don't even know who you are. Yeah. But you know, I think the, the tough part is how do you scale that? How do you, you know, not only grow your personal relationships, how do you maintain them so that you know when the time comes for you to whether call in that favor or just you know talk to them. How, how do you manage all that stuff? So earlier in my business, that I realized that was going to be my biggest asset, not the products I sold. We were not doing anything that innovative at that point mm-hmm. from a product, price, or distribution. So it was all personal relationships. So I always spent time building those relationships. Go have dinner, go have coffee, go have drinks, go out with them, go to an event, do anything to continue to build that mm-hmm. bond. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer that likability is like, Unless you're in technology and you have something, a skill set, or you develop something that's so revolutionary, proprietary, you like know, your personality IP, yeah. doesn't matter, which 99% of businesses it does, you got to be likable. And so I prided myself on like, I'm just going to be friends with everybody, mm-hmm. you know? And so I went out and put all that legwork into building relationships with people and use my personal network and I introduced people to other people and I just became the guy if you want to meet someone he'll hook you up with anybody Mm -hmm, mm because I never viewed relationships as like KG you want to meet someone I know and I can make it happen sure go for it I don't care so I think that's kind of how we really did it and and we focused so much time and energy on those relationships that we ended up getting into more we got more business because of relationships than, than more than product or price and then when those things started hitting those guys felt very comfortable with scaling that business mm-hmm. you know or even with vendors when, that when we owed money we didn't have money to make any of this product but became friends with all of them we would go get drunk with them and they'd be like yeah you know what you're a nice guy even to this day we fly to China four times a year we do millions of dollars of business. We got to go and drink with them. If we don't get drink with get drunk with them, we don't get the credit. Because that's kind of the relationship that you they want to trust you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's about trust. They want to have fun with you, and then you know, business is kind of secondary. Yeah, like they're all. Everyone's taking risks by doing business with each other. So you might as well do business with people that you like. You like. Absolutely. So you said at this point, you know, 
really nothing revolutionary going on with five yeah. four. Yeah, you have you know accounts, but what to get to the next level? It was a couple couple things. One was um, in two thousand five we started developing our denim line. And denim at that point was having this like huge resurgence, like premium denim was like really popular, like True Religion and Seven mm-hmm. and all these brands. So we launched our denim line and instead of, those were all like 180 to $300, we decided, there's a really funny story. We had priced the denim and I had sold it to our best accounts at $65 retail. A friend of mine who eventually became an uh, investor in the business for one year, who was invested for one year, he came, saw the jeans, and he goes, oh, they look good. And he goes, guess what? Nobody wants to buy a jean under $100. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, that's not cool. $65 jean is not cool. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, rip off the tag and put $110. <laughs> and I'm like, I just sold these for like way cheaper. And he's like, who cares? Let, this is a test, right? I only bought 2,000 pairs. He's like, trust me. He's like, just put it at 110 this guy and he's an investor so you kind of got to listen to him yeah and it's more of I trusted his like judgment Judgment. and and taste and I was like okay cool so I went this is when we did the warehouse so I went and re-tagged all the jeans at 110 bucks shipped them off to the customer and the customer calls and goes why are these 110 dollars and I'm like it's the same price to you you're going to have huge margin on it 80% margin if it doesn't work I'll take it back don't worry he puts it at 110 blows out and he was right we were like the first men's denim brand that was considered premium, but we were only at 100, 110 bucks. Yeah. That was the catalyst for our business in the first iteration. It was literally because we were the cheapest premium denim. And by the way, these were made in China and they cost like $10 to make. But at 110 bucks, they felt premium but accessible mm-hmm. and that's really what changed our business overnight yeah I mean it's like a crazy lesson in branding right like yeah. that price tag that people see just automatically increases like the yeah. you know, perceived and, value of, and, that, of and, that and we lived in that era of our of the fashion industry price and brand were equivalent mm-hmm. like if you were expensive you were considered a, a premium brand if you were cheap you were considered a cheap brand whereas today it's a much different story yeah, I mean, even today you see like brands like Supreme, you know, uh, being valued so highly with just like, you know, the regular t-shirt with their, you know, logo yeah, on it. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, D, what took 5.4 to what it is today? You know, it's a, it's a big brand. It's a great company. Folks know about it. And, you know, obviously with social media being a catalyst for that and helping grow that brand, uh, it's a tad bit easier in terms of marketing. But... What what happened that you know it grew to this large company that you're running right now? So I think it's just a lot of lot of lessons and a lot of failures. So you know when we first scaled our wholesale business from like 2005 to 2008, we got into every store we ever wanted to get into: Macy's, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, like whatever. And I think we this is an only men's brand at this it's, point. It's only men's, only and men's. it's only apparel. And so business is incredible. Every retailer wants us that we want to be in. So fantastic. Then the recession hits. And that was like our first wake-up call. And we were like, crap, this isn't guaranteed. Just because we had all this momentum, it can be taken away from you. And at that point, all these big retailers focused on doubling down on the big brands. So they went bigger on Ralph Lauren, bigger on Tommy Hilfiger, and said, emerging brands, we don't really have room for you in a recession. Like, we're not going to take a risk on stuff that doesn't sell. And mainly because we can't take the financial hit. Like, working with a department store, they're very aggressive if your stuff doesn't sell. 
Like you can't make money. So we do that. We get we get the punishment of the cancellations, the bankruptcies, and we were like, you know what? We built a brand. People love it. Now, how do we continue this relationship with them? So it comes down to going direct to the customer. So we end up opening up these retail stores, open up retail, and it was great to have that one to one relationship. But our business wasn't scalable. You know, getting foot traffic into the the into your store is like getting foot traffic or web traffic to your website. It's really really challenging and expensive. And so with guys in a mall, it's even harder. Like they don't want to be there to begin with. And so getting getting them into your store is hard. And then once we once they were in the store, they were very price conscious. They were looking for deals. And then we saw all the pain points: how they didn't enjoy shopping, how they didn't know what to wear, they didn't know what to buy. And we were like, "Holy crap! This is a terrible idea. Like we can't go open to do the sales we wanted to do. We had to open two hundred stores and like." this is a, a realistic model we opened up three stores and we were like this is not scalable Nothing. this is all in Los Angeles all in Los Angeles in like A malls and with the Westfield group they partnered up with us on it and gave us incredible opportunity but we just couldn't make sense like financial sense for it so we had now done retail and wholesale and e-commerce and it had been 10 years 2012 now and that's really what kind of led us to where we are today which is we had experienced everything that our industry had to offer in terms of everything from manufacturing to retail to marketing to distrib- different channels of distribution. And we finally came to the conclusion that we had to do something different. Otherwise, we were out of business. So we end up launching the club, which is really addressing all the pain points we saw in fashion. And once that launches, you know, that business just explodes because it talks, it addressed the price issue. It was only 60 bucks. It addressed the fact that the guy didn't want to go to the mall and didn't enjoy the experience. And that's really what touched a nerve and just kind of took off from there. Yeah, I mean, definitely want to come back to this. I think, um, you know, kind of the, I mean, you're at, you're at this point where you're building this amazing brand and it's blowing up. Like, how do you go from that to starting Young and Reckless, which is your other project? So during the recession, when like nothing was working, um, I get a phone call from a friend and he's like, hey, there's these guys on MTV that are doing this show. Um, you should come, you know, meet them. Maybe there's something to do with them, like partnership or whatever. I was like, cool. So I go down and they're a bunch of skaters and I'm just like, I don't know, man, this is, this is not my cup of tea. Like, I don't even know what these guys are doing. And I'm like, what is this? And he's like, who are these people? And he was like, Rob Dyrdek and Drama and Big Black and all these guys. And they're like, they're launch- they're filming a new show called The Fantasy Factory. Uh, it's like their lives in in building businesses and all this stuff. And I was like, cool. I'm like, good luck. And I just left. And I was like, this isn't for me. And then they filmed the first season of the show. And randomly, I got stuck home. I think I was sick one day. And I binge watched like the first season on MTV, and I was like, "Oh wow, this is this is dope!" Like, and it's like, you know, really entertaining. And I looked at the ratings, and they were really strong. So I reach out back to my friend. I'm like, "Hey, did you guys ever find a deal for uh, drama?" Like, I know he was looking to do a brand. He's like, "No, you want to talk to him?" The funny thing about that was, I had met drama the first go around when I think they were filming Robin Big, and his manager at the time asked me. Will you pay drama four hundred dollars a month to wear five four? And I said no, because I was like, I don't know who they are. And, yeah. and drama always jokes. If you had paid me that four hundred dollars a month, we would have never started Young and Reckless because I would have been happy with the four hundred dollars a month. And 
so uh, I end up meeting Drama and he has incredible name trademarked Young and Reckless and I was like what's your concept and it, it, it kind of was in line with what we wanted to do which was like bring democratize like streetwear and he was like I want to bring like what happens in LA to a bigger audience of people like Fairfax and all those things I was like cool that sounds great and I had relationships with the Paxons the Zoomies the Tilly like all the retailers so really crazy so he films an episode with Rob where they talk about launching Young and Reckless and I get that episode four months in advance I take product to the four biggest retailers in the space I show them the episode and every single retailer I took it to bought it for every single store like this took me 10 years to get 5-4 I got it in one day Every retailer. Pakistan had a thousand stores. They agreed to all thousand stores. Wow. Zoomies. Name a retailer that every single one said okay to it day one. I was like, oh my God. This what was what was your selling? You know, like what were you telling them? that they I just showed them the episode of the show. And that TV was so powerful then. And this show was so powerful to that young audience that they were like, this is free marketing that we're not going to get yeah. from any other brand. So that was really like, and we were at a point where we needed a we needed a win, like we were struggling to pay bills, we were struggling to to do anything. So we were like, let's throw this dart and see what happens. You know, D, that's what's most impressive, I think, and most interesting to me about your story is that you've been doing this for ten years, and yeah, you know, you have a cool product, cool brand, but. You're not making that much money. You're yeah. struggling, but you're still like going. Like you're not yeah. giving up. You know, like yeah. what's driving you at that point? Because entrepreneurs now they give up after a few months, after a year, two years. They just don't keep going because they either realize you know we're not gonna make money. This is not the right product. Not the right. Not the right service. But what was it that kept you going for this long? I'm gonna give you two answers. One, the politically correct answer <laughs> is is more of like we had seen signs of hope. Right? Like, things were, there are times where things were like, oh, wow, we were doing millions of dollars a month in business. We're like, we proved that this can't happen. The other is just ego. Like, you you worked on something 10 years of your life, and then to walk and say, I gave up, and it's embarrassing. Right? But what about year three, year five, year six? I was, I'm so stubborn. And, and I think the other thing about it is entrepreneurs have to be a little delusional. Like, you have to be like, you're gonna figure it out. Like mm. so many young people walk in my office telling me, I'm like, your idea is terrible, right? Like I don't even, I have no faith in it. It's gonna, it's gonna work out. But they continue on. Maybe they'll figure it out. Maybe they won't. But you, in there's like the guy that first invested in me. When I sat in his office and I showed him product, uh, he goes, "You two are the most talentless people I've ever met." You don't have an ounce of creativity in you, but you guys are hustlers. That's literally, that was, I was 24 years old. And he's like, you guys don't know how to design clothes. Like, these are disgusting. And like, and I get it. Like, he was spot on, but he was like, I don't know. He's like, we, our press book was like this thick after two years. We were in every magazine because we became friends with every editor, every writer, because that we knew those, that's a relationship game. So I think a lot of it has to do with like, you know, how, and, and high pain tolerance, right? Like, how much 
How much devastation yeah. can you take? How much can I get shat on and <laughs> yeah. still enjoy it? Yeah. Just bring it on, baby. Yeah. Just bring it on. Because it's still, with despite all the hardships, and look, we haven't had an exit. We're not, you know, gazillionaires. We've done very well. But at the end of the day, it's a lot of fun. And I don't, at this point, 15 years, there's nothing else I can do. Like, I'm not fit for any other industry or job. <laughs> so I'm stuck here. <laughs> so now you have... 5-4 Club, Young and Reckless, and I know you have a few more brands that you're working yeah. on that are in, are in development right now. So kind of tell us about those and what's the future like for not only you, but for both of these companies and for you know a few of these companies, in fact. Yeah, so the reason why we kind of launched all the brands was really to complement what we're doing at 5-4. So the core of 5-4 is like traditional men's apparel. So think of 5-4 as like your J. Crew and your Gap. But now what goes well with J. Crew and Gap? What type of shoes? What kind of active wear, eyewear? So we wanted to build a portfolio of brands that complement what we do at 5.4 and not do it all under 5.4. So like if you looked at like Ralph Lauren in like the 80s, mm-hmm. when the business was on fire, they went into every single category. Underwear, fragrance, this, that. I was like, we used to have meetings and we're like, I don't even want to wear five four shoes, five four underwear, five four fragrance. Like, who's gonna wear all this shit? So we decided to launch a new brand in every category. That way, you can still like our shoe brand, but maybe not like five four or vice versa. So there's a way to engage a larger audience of guys. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really the goal here is to find opportunities, pockets of opportunities to scale brands that complement what we do in 5.4 and ultimately build this like really cool men's platform of brands and services that kind of complement each other so that it really becomes like, you know, a really simple way to explain it is like the Amazon Prime for men. Yeah. Yeah. And so your time is being spent across all these different projects. Um, you, you know, you have a beautiful family and Thank you. You, know, you want to spend time with them. Yeah. How do you manage your time as a founder of and co-founder of all these companies and being involved in so many different projects uh it's obviously pretty hard i think it's also important how you kind of uh choose when to focus on things so like i just obviously had a child and so right now it's more about that being set up properly the family life Mm -hmm. for the future so i'm trying to spend more time on the family as opposed to work and I think there's different f- stages where different things need more attention. And I think if you eventually find the right people in each situation, you'll you'll find uh, a way to balance it all. The reality is you kind of have to do it all. Um, I'm good at not getting overwhelmed. Here's a crazy thing. I don't write down what I have to do. And that's counter to what everyone else does. If I write down what I have to do, I get overwhelmed. I literally will have a panic attack because it's too much. Yeah. So I rather I rather just kind of I have a pretty big staff here, so they kind of keep me in the loop on what I need to do. But like seeing everything you have to do, it gets gets you very overwhelmed because I actually think mental toughness is the most important characteristic mm-hmm. of being an entrepreneur because whether it be from balancing your personal life and your business life and just balancing uh, kind of the hard the hard parts of just bad news because mm-hmm. that's like a daily thing when you have your own business it's not easy 
Yeah, and now you're doing the the 75 mile October uh, run challenge. Is yeah, that right. Like, yeah, I, I don't know why yeah. I put myself in that position. <laughs> so now it's like it's another thing on your on your list. Yeah, I wake up at six in the morning, gotta feed the baby, go to work, go to have dinner and drinks with someone, and then go run buzzed at night, which is not easy. And oh, then, so you run both in the morning and at night. Whenever I have time. If I have a free moment, I'm. Uh, we should have done this podcast running. Yeah, <laughs> I have asthma. I would have died. <laughs> On top of this, I have asthma. Um, but I think I, I'm a. I think you can be efficient with your time. I see a lot of people wasting time, and, you know, like there are certain things, you have to realize that you'll find, you'll get to do these things at different stages of your life. When I was a 15 year old chubby nerdy Indian kid I didn't worry about girls and partying because I was like I'm not I'm that's not I'm not gonna be successful at that at this stage I'm a wannabe investment banker at 15 like I can't pull girls yeah like that's not gonna happen I just said you know what I'm gonna focus on this other stuff and then eventually that stuff will come correct it's it's the same thing it's like you gotta like be realistic of where you are in your life and then attempt those types of things like I didn't focus on my health till I had the resources to do so so it's like I knew I wanted to do that, but then all of it, once I, one day I woke up and I was like, this is important to me. It's really funny because, you know, we kind of going back to what you said earlier about how founders sort of need to be delusional in a way when yeah. their mindset, mind is set on something and they yeah. really want to do it. How do you kind of assess whether or not your, you know, delusion is, how do you validate that? Like, how do you know this is something I should kind of just put my head down and do because I think there's, you know, something there. Yeah, I think for, I mean, today it's a lot different because we have a team. So, like, we all run things by each other before we kind of just checks and balances. But even, you know, even as a few years ago when the team was much smaller, it's a lot of it's just like, what's your risk appetite? You know, some people are conservative, some people are not. We kind of, we'll roll the dice on the whole ship every so often because we just know that, we haven't been successful when we've been complacent and so we've always struggled whenever that has happened so I think the industry we're in today unfortunately or fortunately however you look at it you have to kind of be 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 ready to kind of disrupt yourself and I think so that means trying new things and trying how to figure out but then it also goes back to if you focus you can be very successful on, on, on doing one thing really well and I'm a big believer of that it's just hard to apply when you're when your hands are in like eight different things right now So you guys are big in e-commerce across all your projects. How do you see the future of retail sort of transforming and how do you see technology playing playing a part into that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's we're at a really big uh, pivotal point. There's a lot of retailers that I still work with that are way behind, whether it be from simple as inventory management to uh, their user experience to shipping. And there's people like Amazon who are like light years ahead. Um, the the, the challenge is going to be the best brands in the world are still the best brands in the world and people want it. So it's going to take those people eventually kind of innovating and catching up with the times to really push things forward. Because if you take Amazon, yes, they're fantastic, but they're selling commoditized products, right? Like no one's buying Supreme off Amazon, mm-hmm. right? Like and that's a huge business. No one's buying Chanel off Amazon, and that's a huge business. You can think of a hundred businesses that are massive that are not on Amazon, and so I think there needs to be 
that changing of the guard at like the really great brands where they're like, you know what, we really want to figure out how to make the digital experience more powerful because those are the people that I think are going to make the even the bigger impact than in Amazon. Amazon has paved the way and said, this people want to shop like this. Great. Now, how do we now kind of iterate on that and make it special? Because people still want cool experiences. They, they can be done digitally. We just haven't seen anyone do it incredibly well. I also think the the economics of e-commerce today don't favor most people. Mm-hmm. So between free shipping and free returns and exchanges and things like that, that's a real big problem. And the problem is is that Amazon allows all those things, so a small business can't compete. Yeah. Because they make 2% margin at Amazon on product and they're okay with that. Yeah. We can't, you know, like we don't even offer returns on 54 because it's not mathematically possible to give you this product at this price and give you returns. So we, we as a business made a conscious decision that we're just not going to do it. So I think it'll all balance out where like things will either go up in cost or some of those things that people will start charging for. Because it's like seeing what happened with the ride sharing. Mm-hmm. It's being subsidized by investors, right? So that means it actually hasn't... The technology is... It's not profitable. Yeah, it's yeah. not profitable. But it's... That means someone has to fund it indefinitely. Exactly. So, or they just have to raise the prices so the economics make sense to run the business. Today, it's like a land grab, so everyone's just going to subsidize the the losses. But at some point, you got to catch up to that, and you got to you got to at least break even. Yeah, and even in that example, you know, Amazon is is the distributor at the end of the day, and these are still brands and retailers selling yeah. on uh, Amazon. How do you go like for even up and coming brands? How does one become the platform? How does one be that direct to consumer? Like uh, there's all these logistics on the back end that need to make sense as well. It's not just the brand, right? It's like yeah. how, how does one start that or become that? So I think you can buy everything. You can buy the, the you could use a 3PL, right? A third party logistics firm to handle your shipping and get that out of your system. Customer service, you can outsource it. You can pretty much outsource everything. The one thing you can't outsource is how you talk to your customer and how you control your customer. So today, 97% of ad revenue is is controlled by two companies, Facebook and Google. If you're reliant on those two channels, you're in a very tough position. And we've been there before where we're so heavily reliant on them. And that's most of e-commerce today is reliant on two people. So you need to have a one-to-one relationship with the customer without them. So you got to build your own audience. You got to have you have to start your own conversation and grow that organically, as opposed to trying to do it through Facebook and Google, because you're competing with a bunch of people that have endless money that will always outbid you. So I think to me, the real way to build that platform is even if it's with five people, but you talk to them directly. You talk to those five people, and then that five becomes ten, ten becomes a hundred, and you grow on so on and so forth. It is a slow, long burn, but it's supreme. Like that's what Supreme is. Supreme doesn't spend a dollar on marketing, right? Because they control the conversation with their customer and they have been for 25 years. That's like, to me, if you have the patience and the way to build any brand, they're a great example. Like there's so many interesting brands that I always come across like the Yeti coolers that, you know, have a huge exit. They have an incredible relationship with their customers and you can find this across any industry, software, technology, apparel, consumer goods. Yeah. So there's people that are doing it, so you can't say that it's not it's not possible. I know earlier you said, you know, you were trying to get into a Yankee game when you went to New York and yeah. you guys were just in the Yankee game 
big banner ad. Yeah, we're, sp- we're we're one of their sponsors now. That's amazing. Nice. And yeah. funny enough, I still haven't been to a Yankee game <laughs> in New York. <laughs> I mean, you still go to a Yankee game. No, I mean we've been sponsoring yeah. them for the last couple of years, but yeah. like when I go, we we'll go in and out so fast that like I'm never there for a game. So, but it's fun. It's so, fun to be a sponsor. So do, I know people can look you up. They can look up the brands. But I think it's cool to also hear from, you know, the person behind this all of how this club works. You know, yeah. I'm a guy, like you said, I agree with you. I don't really want to go to the mall. Yeah. When I'm there, it's like, I mean, it's a horrible experience. I can't wait to get out. Yeah. Uh, the food court is probably the only place I'll go. Yeah. But why should somebody like me be on your platform? So I think... If I, if I cut all the, the frills stuff that most brand people will tell you, from a value perspective at $60 a month, if you were to get like a button-down shirt and a pair of jeans for $60, that's the equivalent of buying something at H&M. I mean, frankly, at Walmart, it's that cheap. But you're getting a brand that does designer collaborations worn by A-list celebrities. So if they're wearing it and these people are working with us, that means we've got the validation from a product and quality standpoint that they're on par with the best brands in this in this market. So I think from a product quality and design, we're completely on par with the best in men's. We just offer an incredible amount of value. And once you're a member, the 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 perks of being a member of getting access to these collaborations early um the price you get to pay for this stuff like we did a collaboration with chris paul like there was nothing over 50 bucks and this is a guy that lives in saint laurent and gucci and designer brands and he helped build this line together incredible quality um and then as a member all our other brands you get 25 percent off and free shipping oh wow, i didn't know that so you can get like our active wear a compression short that we only charge 30 dollars retail for is now 25 percent off that yeah. so you're talking 22 bucks plus free shipping and then like shoes like this which is like would be three four hundred for this chelsea boot is now only 75 bucks mm-hmm. plus free shipping so there's so many perks, so many things. And then there's a lot of content. There's a lot of educating guys. So guys don't, you would never go buy a cardigan at a mall because you're like, why would I ever wear a cardigan? We ship cardigans and they're the most popular item that guys get because we educate them and say, this is how you wear it. This is what you wear underneath it. This is what the pants you wear. These are the shoes you wear. This is how you should, you know, wear it if you go out, if you want to wear it under a jacket. So content fashion education it's a huge part of it it's really about making guys feeling comfortable with style and fashion and all at an accessible price point like why can't fashion be amazing cool like be proud to wear it and still be accessible that's awesome um so a lot of people who may you know look search you up or or know you and know of you will say that you're been pretty successful. I mean, you have multiple companies, multi-million dollar companies, uh, and you've been doing this for a while now. What's what's next for D? Like, do you is there anything else you have your eyes on? Are you just kind of still focused on building out these companies, or, or do you have any other? Yeah, I mean, I obviously want to see these companies through, like whether it be an acquisition or a proper partner. Um, I think that's really the goal. And until they have all proper homes, I don't think we'd kind of stop. Um, and but a part of me would love a break so uh, I'm tired <laughs> so I think at some point you know we need a we would all need a break because yeah. we've been non-stop on, like it's funny I was joking with my dad he worked at his 
old job for 30 years and I was like that's probably not happening anymore right like no. the company man got the gold watch mm-hmm. the pen mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. whatever and I was joking my dad I'm like I'm gonna do 20 mm-hmm. I mean like we're we just we just finished 15 we're on our way to 16 I'm like I'm gonna do 20 years of the same thing every single morning that's crazy and like so I think it's like you know maybe it'll go forever and my kid will run it one day or maybe we'll just you know Call it quits at some point. I thought you were going to say you wanted to buy the New York Yankees. Just, you, know, you like Gary Vee with the Jets. You, know, you, know, you see Gary Vee running the Jets. You see you running the Yankees. And you're just like, what the hell happened? You know, it's like crazy stuff. That seems like a yeah. headache. <laughs> right? You go from sponsorship to ownership. Yeah. I, I think I think that's I wanna, a big job. I want to I wanna play uh, in the older men's tennis circuit and beat them up. Like, while I'm okay. still young and healthy. <laughs> like, I want to go beat up, like, 67-year-old, like, tennis players yeah. and see if I can beat them. Andre, he's coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you, do you, I know that a lot of the folks that we've talked to always have this, you know, their advice or, you know, their kind of view on life. What would you say is perhaps one thing or one piece of advice that you would give to anybody who whether they want to be a founder whether they you know even if they don't want to be a founder but just kind of do the unconventional what, what would you tell them you know there's obviously so many things I, I'm a big believer of karma so I think it's just you got to be a good person I think if you treat people well like there's so many things I've done for people and my friends or family like I can't believe you did that and I'll just like it'll karma you need the good energy it'll eventually pay itself back and and in a lot of cases it has like whether it be through relationships or introductions or business opportunities i was nice the reason why i got young and reckless is because i was friends with the manager who for no reason to be friends with him and he wasn't incredibly nice to me either but i stayed in touch with him and when the opportunity was there i was standing there and today my peers i grew up with are now in all very powerful places and when it's anyone wants to do anything consumer I'm the first person they'll call like hey what do you would you want to do this and so I think being likable being a good person to me is like baseline you got to do that because there's a lot of very likable good people that I come across that are very successful I'm like huh I wonder how they did it and then I realize oh they're just great people like if you look at CEOs of fortune 100 companies I don't find them all to be all that brilliant all that intelligent they're just incredible communicators. They're likable people. And that's what a lot of people I meet, they're like, I'm so good at this. I'm so talented. I'm like, yeah, but that's only half. There's hard skills and there's soft skills. Soft skills are equally as important as hard skills. In, in, in management, soft skills are even more important. Like the EQ versus IQ. Yeah. And, and I think that is such a the characteristic where I see a lot of people they think it's all about all the other things like yeah you're talented if you yeah you, you can be an asshole if you have LeBron James talent mm-hmm. and he's not an asshole yeah. you know what I mean so no one should have the right to be an asshole ever or treat people poorly if he's not yeah very well because he has God's given talents that none of us will ever see absolutely not so, 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 so I think the, that to me is the way to properly live your life whether you're an entrepreneur or do whatever D, thank you so much for your time, and I hope the listeners really got some great stuff from you, because I think that even I and Patrick learned a lot, um, and we just you know wish you the best of luck in all your future stuff and all the present stuff that's going on as well. Cool. Thanks, guys. I yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, it's been it. an amazing conversation. Definitely. Thanks,